This is Beth Bruno, and you're listening to the Fierce and Lovely Podcast. On this podcast, I amplify the feminine voice and curate feminine glory so that you, my listener, find your own fierce and lovely story. It has become somewhat of a sacred journey for me to uncover the stories of women from around the world throughout time and present day. The more fierce and lovely women I explore, the more I fall in love with the one in whose image we reflect. My hope is that in this space, you embrace your own beautifully ordinary life as the majority story most of us are living. Welcome to the Fierce and Lovely Podcast. Well, it is still the first month of a new year, a new decade, and I am sure that for many of us, whether or not we come up with resolutions or set goals or have a one word, most of us are thinking somewhere in the realm of um, newness, of maybe some more self-discovery, maybe some more honesty about where we're at and where we want to be, who we want to become. One of the things we haven't discussed very much on this show is how to become more honest with ourselves. What does it look like to truly begin to to cut the crap, to get past the the coping mechanisms, the survival skills that we've lived under for so long, the the lies we tell ourselves and to really begin to to ask is that truly how I feel? Is that really what's going on? Well, my guest today, Heather Kaliri, writes about this, has lived it out herself. And on this show, she shares about her own story with managing anxiety. It is a rich discussion that I hope is applicable to you, whether or not you struggle with anxiety in particular. I think learning to become honest about what our struggles are is the first step toward a better integration with with ourselves and what Heather describes as becoming less alienated from our body. Her new mini course, Five Tiny Ideas for Managing Anxiety, a mini course in everyday sanity, um, is a wonderful resource. And you can find that on her website. Check out the show notes where I have links to all things Heather, as well as some reflection questions that you can ask yourself as you listen to the show as you can uh, discuss with your friends if you're listening together. I want this to be helpful and applicable to you, and I think it will be. So here's my conversation with Heather. Hey, Heather, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much. I'm so pleased to be chatting with you today. I would love for you to start us off by telling us a little bit about who you are, where you are, what occupies your days, all of that good stuff. Sure. Well, um, I am a writer. I also um, am a mom and a wife. Uh, I have two daughters. They're 13 and 10. And I spend a lot of my time actually homeschooling them. So um, figuring out how to balance those parts of my life, um, pursuing, pursuing a writing career and creative work, and also spending time with my kids and mentoring and shepherding them, that pers- that takes up quite a lot of my time. 
And I live a little bit north of San Diego and have been rooted here for quite a long time, actually. Um, I spent my childhood moving around a lot, but we moved here in seventh grade when I was in seventh grade. And I've been here ever since, which means that um, I'm really joyful. I'm almost coming up on 30 years being part of my the church that I've been here, which is a big part of my story. I think that sense of early dislocation and then, you know, desperately clinging to roots afterwards is something that's a big deal for me. Well, I, I would love to hear more about that. But first, how do you do that? How do you homeschool and do anything else? Where do you find the time to write and to pursue all the things you're interested in while you've got these two adolescent girls, te- young teen girls in your home? You know, that's a great question. I think I think one big part of what makes my life workable is that my husband works from home. He has his own business and has a completely flexible schedule. So I have a lot of support at home. Um, That has really helped. Uh, I think another thing that happened early on um, when I had about a year after my second daughter was born, I I decided to take a year off from writing when she was born because with my first one, I didn't intentionally decided to do that, but I did it anyway and felt terrible about it. So with my second, I, I decided to give myself a little bit of a sabbatical as I was recovering from birth and newbornhood. And when I started writing again, I really kind of had this mindset of like, I don't actually have time to do this, but I'm going to show up with whatever time I have. And for me at the beginning, that was like 15 minutes. And it was a struggle to even just get my brain to function for 15 minutes Um, I had been writing before that. So it helped that I had some practice, you know, being a writer. Um, I'd done like a master's degree in it and stuff. So I had quite a lot of practice, but figuring out how to write with kids in the house was by far the toughest challenge I faced as a writer, right? So I showed up. I was like, if I can show up for 15 minutes once a week, I will count that a victory. And learning how to just prioritize writing enough so that I had, that I used the time that I set aside was a really big spiritual practice for me and a really big creative practice. Deciding that 15 minutes was enough to justify trying made it possible for me to keep trying. Does that make sense? So I did. Oh, totally. I didn't, I didn't think I need to collect hours because I just didn't have hours. So I showed up and was tried to be faithful with that little bit. And over time, it, I I began to have more time and I also just began to prioritize it. You know, I I decided I will not go shopping with when I, without my kids, because if I have time alone and I use it to shop, I can't use it for, (laughs) for writing. So I just prioritized anytime I did not have children, I was writing any, everything else, errands, you know, anything else had to be done with kids. And that was really tough when they're little, but now that they're older, that's not such a big deal. I have a lot more time. So I think just figuring out how to prioritize and um, really being willing to be faithful with the limited time that I had, it over time, that tiny little bit of faithfulness planted the seeds for something more. Mm-hmm. And created an entirely new rhythm for how you were a mother, yeah. which I'm sure is encouraging for all mothers of of young kids, you know, writers or not, just that it takes stepping out and starting that new pattern yeah. as small as it might be. Totally. And I also think, I mean, I think sometimes we feel guilty 
prioritizing that time and not devoting it to stuff that our family needs, right? But I also think our kids need to see their parents engaged in meaningful work, whether that's paid or unpaid. We need to show what it looks like to live out our calling. We need to model that. And especially because I really have been blessed by being a stay-at-home parent, but I would go crazy if that was all I was doing with my brain all day. And I don't want my daughters to think that you have to sacrifice your selfhood and your calling and your giftedness in order to care for other people. So Hmm. I really wanted, I, I don't know that I really understood that at the beginning. I was still very hesitant and suffered from a lot of guilt. But as I went on, I think I reading Brene Brown on um, how to parent children, um, you know, in Daring Greatly, she really talked about how we have to model the kind of behavior we want our kids to grow up into, you know, and I absolutely feel guilty about, you know, using their gifts, (laughs) like, oh, my gosh, no, no way. So I shouldn't Mm -hmm. think about it either. I have to just live it out and have balance, yes, but really say both and and not one or the other. Absolutely. I'm all for modeling that to our girls, just a holistic view of what it means to be a woman and how to balance all of the things. Not that not that we can in a perfect way all the time, but just like you said, to live out your calling and show them how you do that in a meaningful way. Absolutely. Well, Heather, I love asking my guests at the very beginning, um, you know, just based on the name of the show, I love hearing how women describe the intersection of fierce and lovely in their own lives. What does that look like for you? I think what that looks like for me is really acknowledging and owning and sitting with the dark things, especially the dark emotions in my life, um, anxiety, anger, uh, bitterness, that is the fierce part. And then the lovely part is when I'm able to actually make space to look at those emotions, be honest about them, take them to God, be honest about them with other people, that it opens up doors of transformation, of freedom, of resurrection in my life in a really crazy way. I mean, really in every area of my life. Um, And not being afraid of being fierce at the same time as being lovely. You know, like I think sometimes as Christians, we want to go for the loveliness and we want it to be kind of like soft and pretty. (laughs) And sometimes it doesn't look like that way. Sometimes it's ugly and raw. And I think being willing to be really honest Um, is the precursor to really finding that beauty um, that lies underneath our our most terrible experiences. And it's such a beautiful journey into those dark places. I think that in itself is beautiful. And those are the places Jesus traversed with people. So yeah, I love that description. you. You mentioned anxiety, and I know you write a lot about anxiety, your own personal journey with it, and just wanting to come alongside of others who struggle with it with some even practical ideas. So let's, I'd love to talk a little bit more about that. And maybe you could start off by describing anxiety, uh, what it, what it is, what it isn't, maybe where some of us might get it wrong and and how we imagine it. Do you mind doing that? Not at all. Um, Well, I might start with how I got it wrong. Um, I 
I think that verse in the Bible in Philippians where it says, do not be anxious about anything. I just thought, okay, well, anxiety is a no-no. And if I feel any amount of fear, I, I would say anxiety is sort of a persistent fear or worry that kind of is like a low grade hangover all the time, right? Like those persistent worries that don't go away, um, that persistent feeling of unease of kind of having a knot in your stomach all the time. Um, that I would say, I mean, I'm not a clinical psychologist by any stretch of the imagination, but that has often been my experience of anxiety. And I thought as a Christian, if I'm feeling that sort of, if I'm feeling worries over and over and over again, that means I'm feeling anxious and that's wrong. And therefore I should stop. And in order to stop, I need to pray more and I need to be a better Christian and I need to work harder to take control of my thought life and take every thought captive for Jesus. And that will be the way to victory over anxiety and end of story. And the only problem was none of that worked. The more, that was the problem. Like it was a brilliant plan, except for that it totally didn't work at all. Right. Um, And I think the other thing that I didn't realize was just how anxious I was Um, I think a lot of us, if you've grown up at all with any kind of fear or trauma or just, you know, even a normal childhood, or if you grow up with an anxiety disorder or a history of family patterns of that, you might not even know how much anxiety you're swimming in because you're so used to it that just, it feels like reality, right? Um, Right. It's normal to you. It's normal. So I remember um, this one time... I grew up with a fairly traumatic up, upbringing. You know, there was some serious problems going on in my family of origin that stuck with me into adulthood. And but when I felt unease about those things, it was pretty normal. <laughs> it was a pretty normal, reasonable reaction to some of the things I went through. So I kind of thought I had like just general. I, I had specific worries about specific things, but I didn't think I had a general anxiety problem. And then my husband and I were pre- preparing to move abroad. And as part of that, we needed to have a conversation with our landlord about whether or not we could sublet our, our house. And um, it wasn't that high stakes of a situation. If he said, no, we had a plan. If he had said, yes, we had a plan. But until my husband actually had the conversation with him. I couldn't sleep. I was, I just felt like my insides were in a knot. I was so, I felt like my skin was on fire. I mean, I just felt so uncomfortable and it was several days. And the whole time I was thinking, this makes no sense. Like in my brain, I understood this is not a reasonable reaction to this very low stakes situation, but my, I could not turn off those feelings. And that realization of like this low grade unease that I feel, this isn't a normal reaction <laughs> to the situation that I'm in. That was actually, I mean, it was kind of a crappy thing to realize, but it was also helpful. And that it sort of forced me to say, maybe I have a problem and maybe something better is possible. Maybe the feeling of unease that I have all the time, maybe that, maybe it, it could be different. Um, Imagining a possibility other than just dutifully fighting against it with prayer and not having really anything change, that was kind of a game changer for me. So I think for a lot of us, number one, we don't recognize that things could be better. We don't know that um, how much anxiety we're actually dealing with. We don't know what the cause of it is. 
my, you know, nowhere in my grand Christian plan for dealing with anxiety did I ever think I should figure out why I feel so anxious all the time. That didn't even occur to me. It was just like, shut it down. End of story, right? So we need to get to the roots of it. And we actually need to do something about it, if at all possible. That might mean that we need therapy like I did. Some people you know, need some medication to deal with it. We might need to change circumstances in our lives that are you know, oppressing us. Um, there are all sorts of things that we can do about it. But until we acknowledge that we have a problem and actually take proactive steps, it's probably not going to change, right? Right. Naming it is the totally. first step. I was surprised at how big of a deal that was. I never think I'm kind of a let's go to the complicated solution first. This is a very simple solution. <laughs> so you you recognize this is not normal. This is at this is way over the top for what's actually happening. There must be something here. I want to start to address it because I I realize maybe I could live differently. Maybe it could look differently for me. And then you talk about finding the root cause, which feels like the ultimate healing plan, but then also maybe changing some of the circumstances, getting some medicine in the in the near future. What would you say, after you named it, were some of the best next steps that you took to begin to heal? Yes. Um, I think one of the baby steps that I, that is available to all of us is I just started paying attention to what made me feel better. Um, specifically in that case with my, um, with my landlord, the situation with my landlord, I had, I've been trying to get my kids to memorize scripture and pretty much if I get, try to get my kids to do something, they are so uninterested in it, which <laughs> confession of a homeschooling mother. Right. Um, and so I've gotten this, uh, this CD of Bible verses set to music and they were so uninterested to it. And I happened to play it for them during those days that I was feeling like I wanted to crawl out of my skin and they like wandered away. And I somehow, I was like singing it. And it was the first moment of respite that I had had in like 24 hours. And I just, something about singing the words and promises of scripture set to music it, for some reason, it lifted my spirits and also like doing yoga. Like I just, I've, I've, as I've paid attention to things that make me feel better, getting some kind of exercise, getting enough sleep, taking a nap, all of those things that are just available to all of us. If, if I recognize the feeling, if I name the feeling in the moment, I'm feeling anxious right now. I've started sort of collecting a little toolbox of very simple things that I can do to make myself feel better. Yesterday, I was feeling anxious. I've had like a a doctor's visit that made me feel unsettled yesterday. And I like went and started a jigsaw puzzle, like something orderly (laughs) that I can just do and is very calm and quiet. It doesn't have to be Christian-y. It doesn't have to be complicated. It doesn't have to be, you know, expensive. Just things that actually make my body feel better. That is a big deal. Um, I think mm-hmm. the other thing is though, for me specifically, a lot of my anxiety was really rooted in the trauma of my childhood. And until I really went and dealt with that trauma in therapy, I don't think that I would have experienced the freedom that I've, that I've experienced. So unfortunately, therapy is expensive and time consuming. So I don't want to presume that it's so easy for everybody to go out and get it. but if, you know, even group therapy or, you know, 
any kind of counsel that you can get um, with trained psychologists or therapists is such a lifeline because I just really would not have been able to navigate the stuff that I needed to process without some professional help. So going back and really dealing with some of those early traumas helped you reframe maybe some of your responses, helped you rethink how you were, uh, like what your body was doing to react to things that maybe were triggers? Processing a lot of those emotions and understanding the past was a big part of it. But I'd say almost the bigger part was figuring out how the coping mechanisms that I learned in childhood and the relationships that I learned in childhood needed to change in order for me to have healthy, happy relationships in the present day. Learning how to draw boundaries with people, learning how to be honest with people with whom I had been angry, um, really learning how, because if you learn unhealthy relationships as a kid, you repeat those patterns until you learn differently, right? So I really had to heal my way of being in relationships in order for my all of my relationships to not make me feel anxious. Yes, that makes a lot of sense. I love I so you have a mini course that we'll tell people about, but I love in there how you talk about um, paying paying attention because it's really your body is hungry for peace, which is why the anxiety is there and that when you can become more aware of it and listen it's it's crying yes, out for something. Yes. Tell me a little bit more about how you became so in tune with your body and and knowing what is it what is it crying out for right now? That's a good question. It's funny. I think um, I think I'm generally I think my gifts are in discernment and but in my childhood I became so alienated from myself that. I remember thinking in in high school, like I used to cry. I don't cry anymore. And I will just tell you that I am like a weeper at like the drop of a hat. So the fact that at, you know, age 16, I felt alienated from my own emotional life, that kind of was a clue <laughs> to how alienated I was from my own self, you know? And it was a coping mechanism to survive because if you're feeling everything all the time and really bad things are happening, it's just not smart to stay in that, right? I think one of the things was really learning to be honest with myself. And that was a long-term process. I had, you know, a lot of it I think came out of experiences of mental illness where I just didn't have, I, after college, I went through a pretty serious depression and I just didn't have the wherewithal to keep up appearances anymore. They just, I didn't have the wherewithal for anything. And I, everything collapsed. So it was sort of like, okay, I'm down in the dust anyway. I might as well be honest. And that was one of the times where getting, you know, professional help really helped me. It was life-saving. Um, so I think, I think it's funny. I, I would never want to trivialize mental illness or depression. It is not something I would wish on anybody. But I do think that when you go through a period where all of the things that you've done to make yourself look happy and healthy and sane when all of those things collapse it's not an entirely bad thing right you have to become more honest with yourself if you're going to recover for something like that so i think in the desperation mm-hmm. of i also realized at that point that in many areas of my life i had been lying to myself i was telling myself i was a happy productive 
Christian when in fact at night I was having panic attacks or close to panic attacks. So it's like, you know, you can, you can tell yourself, you can talk a really good game in your head and have your emotional life have absolutely nothing to do about that. So it really, when I fell into a depression, it was sort of like, I don't ever want to get blindsided again. I don't ever want to have no idea what's actually going on in my head because I had talked such a good game for so many years, kept up appearances for so many years that I had no idea what I was actually feeling. And that that sort of loss of all the things that I thought that I knew about myself made me much, it was so much of a loss that I kind of had nothing to lose by being honest with myself anymore. Does that make sense? So I think that those terrible, again, where this is going back to the fierce and lovely, those terrible experiences that we go through, no, none of us, I don't think God relishes that kind of experience in our life. I don't think that we need to celebrate it like, woohoo, I'm depressed. But at the same time, if we can get through it, you gain wisdom from those experiences. And I think that that was really losing everything, losing my sense of who I was and what I knew about myself kind of made made me have nothing to lose with being honest. And as I practiced being honest with myself, then I started understanding, oh, this is what my body is feeling. Oh, this is actually what I feel about the situation. Oh, I would like to like this Christian thing, but I actually don't, you know? And that practice of discernment leads to us not being alienated from ourselves. And if we're not alienated from ourselves, we can actually understand what our body needs and what our brain needs and take care of it. So for those who that's that might be really new to to think about that and maybe they're wondering how do I know if that's me right now what would be a clue that maybe someone is alienated from their body or or what would it look like for someone to be really attuned to their that's body a good question I think I think this is where those dark emotions are so helpful I think they're like little signals that our body sends up when something is not matching, you know? So if you're feeling anxious and you're telling yourself and you're like, I don't know why I'm feeling anxious. Well, there's probably something that you're not acknowledging to yourself or that you haven't figured out yet. So for some people, like I know someone with an anxiety disorder and she was feeling low grade anxiety all the time and she didn't know what was wrong. And when she started on medication, she started feeling better. And just Anxiety is is inherited genetically. Like anxiety runs in my family. Um, you know, I have family members who deal with it on a more clinical level than I do. Um, so we should look around at our family and see: Are there patterns running through my family of depression? Can I get some professional help to help me discern? Is this just a blip? Is this a long term thing? Um, so, if you are feeling bitterness. If you are feeling envy, if you're feeling things that make you feel ashamed of yourself, probably there's some sort of mismatch between the, the thing that you're telling yourself and how you actually feel or about stuff. For instance, in my parenthood, for a long time, I felt really bitter about how much work I was having to do to keep the house up and how little support I felt from my family. And, but I didn't tell anybody about it. I just kind of harbored this sense of resentment and of martyrdom, you know? And so if you're telling yourself, I love being a mother, (laughs) I love being a wife, but you feel a low grade bitterness or resentment all the time. 
that might be a clue that you need to be a little bit more honest with yourself. And that can be really scary, right? Like there's a reason why we don't go there because it kind of shakes up all of your relationships. But if you, it's, you have to be willing to explore those negative emotions and be really kind to yourself when you are like, quote unquote, not being a good person by feeling them and really get to the root of them. And that's why I would say that professional help is so important because usually if you're feeling those things, you have pretty good reason for feeling them and you have really good reasons for not wanting to to explore them because it's really disruptive, (laughs) to be honest about those things. It's disruptive to all of your relationships and to your lifestyle and to the way you do things. That's that's great. And professional help would help you navigate that and, and figure out how to express yourself in a way that does as little harm as possible to those you love, I imagine. One of the most transformative things my therapist ever said to me was in a relationship that was really troubling me. She was like, well, what do you want? What do you want from this relationship? And it had never occurred to me that I could ask myself that question. Um, You know, in our primary relationships, and, and I am, I love the fact that we are committed to other people in faith. I love the fact that in my marriage, I'm called to stick around, right? Like, but at the same time, if we never actually ask what what is working for me and not working for me, what would what what I like to get out of this relationship, then things never get better. We just stay stuck where we are, and we get more and more bitter, and nothing ever changes. You know? Yes. So it's the it's the courageous choice to face that darkness and embrace the disruption because. It, yeah, it leads to a healthier life, healthier relationships, but it's hard. It's, it takes yeah. a lot of courage. And I kindness imagine. too, because it's easy to be angry, especially if you've been storing up all that resentment. And it's not fair to just like dump all that on people. <laughs> so that's another thing that professional really professional help really helped me do is consider where those negative emotions were leading me, but also learn how to communicate it, communicate in a way that was fair and respectful and loving to other people, because that's how you do all of that. It's like a t- right. tightrope walk, right? Right. Yes. Well, tell us a little bit about your mini course, Heather, and what what you hope for your reader to get out of it, because it's, I, I've resisted asking for all of these ideas from you here because I know you've written them all out for everybody in your course. So tell us a little bit about that. Five tiny ideas for managing anxiety. And the reason I say tiny in the title is because when I'm feeling anxious, I can manage very little. (laughs) It feels like, you know, even five minutes of effort can feel like a Herculean task, right? So I really wanted to write something for people who felt overwhelmed um, and who felt ashamed. For, for the longest time, I felt ashamed that I was feeling so anxious all the time or that I didn't, that my thought patterns never seemed to get healthier or that I didn't seem to be able to trust Jesus more with the things that I was, were going on in my life. And so my hope for the book is that when readers go through it, it's in sort of five short lessons that they will feel empowered to understand how anxiety might actually, if they view it as a signal rather than as a thing that shames them, how it might actually open up roots of healing and doorways into freedom for them, how it might actually have information to give them about how to heal. And so then if instead of, if, if you feel anxiety, 
and you view it as an invitation towards healing and you view it as a signal that something might be wrong, when you feel it, rather than feeling shame and trying to ignore it or make it go away, you actually might be able to take a productive step forward. So in the book, I really talk about switching our mindset from that shame-based thinking towards this sort of toolbox mentality, and then really offering some practical tools for people um, that are accessible, you know, from professional help all the way on down to, you know, just sitting and breathing for five minutes. Um, There's really, I think the thing that's important to know is not everything will work the same way for everybody. And you really have to be discerning your own toolbox. I don't have a magic solution to give to anybody. I just know what's worked for me. But if we put our heads together and we keep sharing and we keep talking honestly about it, we can come to solutions that meet us where we are, that take into account our circumstances, and that really bless us and make us feel better. And I just love how it is um, broad from from therapeutic suggestions and how to access some of the free therapeutic um, opportunity tools, all the way to those simple things like yoga and breathing and <laughs> and jigsaw puzzles. So, I just appreciate Heather you sharing with us your own journey of anxiety and some of the freedom that you have found in it. There's so much more that we could talk about, um, but for today, I just am really appreciative of of being able to dive into this topic. We haven't addressed this yet on the Fierce and Lovely podcast, and I know that it's really going to feel relatable to a lot of listeners. 